everybody. Uh, unexpected points. Back in your eardrum or eyeball if you're watching on YouTube. Although that sounds a little uh, sounds kind of gross. Um, plus, just just my grill on here, just my face on here. So you're not really getting anything too fantastical when it comes to the analysis here on YouTube. But I know it is it is the preferred way of consuming content for a lot of people. So I appreciate that. I'm hoping, I don't know if it's the case, subscribe. Hey, I should probably tell people like, go ahead, subscribe. So you can, uh, you know, ask some questions. I'll do some Q&A on here. Um, let me go ahead and put this in the old comment section. Um, hoping that it like has a little bit of outreach effect here on YouTube. I know that YouTube is one of the world's like biggest search engines, basically. I mean, it's owned by Google, so it's all it's all related. But, you know, a lot of people find stuff via there versus even looking up for it in any other sort of way. But anyway, let's let's get into let's get into the numbers. Let's get into the advanced stance, let's get into the EPA. Let's get into the success rates, all that sort of stuff. Um, last night, Eagles at home versus the Vikings. As we all saw, the Eagles won the game. One thing I forgot to mention in my advanced review, which you can check out unexpectedpoints.substack.com please go subscribe there help me you know feed my feed and clothe myself and my family um, but one thing i forgot to mention as part of this which i think is an important contextual sort of element for this game is that while there was conceivably a chance for the Vikings to come back in this game. Um, when you look at the win probability numbers, and I think the win probability numbers that uh, Ben Baldwin has over at his um, R- RBSDM, running backs don't matter.com site, you can find them there. They're, you know, they're put together in the NFL faster package, whereas where I take most of my data from um, everything that's produced there. I think they're pretty good. There's been a there's been a problem in the past with a lot of modeling is having overconfident sort of numbers for win probability. You know the whole thing where the the Falcons had a 99.999% chance to win or whatever it said on ESPN's model um, in the Super Bowl against the Patriots and then didn't end up happening, all that sort of stuff. But I think I think the the numbers here through the NFL faster model are pretty good. Um, but what I will say is most people will still be a bit incredulous looking at these numbers because they're going to look at this and say, um, okay, in the second half, you go into you, you go into the second half, it's 13 to 3 with that last – actually, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong score. 13 to 7 with the last field goal. So six-point lead, barely anything, Right. Vikings start with the ball also. I mean, they quickly cough it up, but they start with the ball. And then boom, turnover, touchdown, and then it ends up being 20 to 7. But even at that point, you're you're thinking, ah, it's within two scores. It never got further spread out. Well, I guess it was a 20-point lead at one point, but then it quickly got knocked back down to being a 13-point lead. And we never really got out above that amount. There wasn't like an extreme lead at any point in time. Um, and at one point, you know, to, to end that, to end the game. And they didn't have a lot of time here. Obviously the Vikings had no time. It was a one score game it was a one score game when the Eagles got the ball back um, at a certain point. 
I think it was about four minutes and 13 seconds left to go somewhere in that, in that range, around the four minute sort of range. So we think, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty close, but yet when you look at the win probability on this um, and you look at the second half, I mean, the win probability is like really high for the Eagles pretty much the entire time. You wouldn't necessarily think it, but again, they're at home. They had the lead. It was about 80% at halftime. Then Madison fumbles, and it quickly jumps up to being more like 90%. And again, this is only with a six-point six lead at this point. Then Hertz scores. It bumps up, and now we're getting, and it's harder kind of to move up at this point, you know, to, to get it higher and higher and higher. Um, but we're up to 92%. They make the extra point, and you're at other than the touchdown, all that sort of stuff. We're up about 94 95%. So, and it really maintains that 90 to 95% range the entire rest of the game until we get very, very late. And then it goes up even further at that point. So I think that's an important point to mention when we're looking at the win probabilities. And I know no one believes them, but I think these are pretty well calibrated, but it's important thing to, to remember when we're thinking about this game is that, you know, the closeness of the game is, is, is normally overestimated by a lot of people when it comes into terms of something like win probability. But I will say of this particular game, and I think that I, I write extensively in the post today about why there are some issues with the numbers that I have in this. In this particular game, I do think the Vikings deserve to win. My adjusted scores officially have the Eagles as one point better than the Vikings. So it's more narrow than, again, what was a 13-point lead for a lot of the game and then down to a six-point lead at the end. It's more narrow than that, a lot more narrow at only one point. But I think the Vikings probably should have even been had a higher adjusted score than the Eagles. And I'll explain why. And again, I mentioned this in the in the post in, in pretty good detail. But the thing is, when I'm looking at this, one of the big metrics that ends up getting um, discounted is turnovers and specifically, you know, fumbles being more fluky even than interception rates, like an individual runners or quarterbacks fumble rate. Although quarterbacks fumble rates are a bit stickier because they, you know, they take sacks and they fumble, but they're not as sticky as interception rates, even if interceptions are, are pretty fluky. So, but, but the thing is in the, in the, in the model, we have one number for expected points added and that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at here when I'm figuring out like the turnover expected points added for a team. There's one number on the play, and then the play is labeled as let's say a fumble. So let's talk about the Justin Jefferson fumble, for instance. And this is like again, I'm kind of taking you behind the curtain a little bit here. And you have to know you know where the bodies are buried essentially when it comes to modeling here, and it helps us interpret the results there. So the EPA on that play that the Vikings lost when Jefferson fumbled it out of bounds. Is only three and a half points in aggregate on that play. Now, I think we all know that the fumble itself, isolating the actual high variance, not sticky act, just a fumble, any sort of fumble, but let alone a fumble where you're trying to extend the ball over the goal line and it goes out of bounds, um, and how unlucky that that may be. The act itself is obviously much bigger than that. I mean, they're about to score, right? So even if he doesn't score and he's out at the one-yard line, let's say, that versus giving the ball to the Eagles on the 20-yard line is at least six points, a difference that we're talking about, closer to seven points. But it's only three and a half in 
in that play, which is labeled a fumble and, and feeds into the model as the fumble loss. Now, why is that? Well, because it's looking at the whole play in aggregate. It's not looking specifically at that one moment. So when the Vikings have the ball second and 10 on the Eagles 31 yard line, which is where the play started, uh, their expected points at that that moment are 2.8 points. So that's your, your starting point when we're talking about EPA, calculating EPA. Now, everything that ends up happening, the, Vic- the Vikings, I mean, not the Vikings, the Eagles end up with possession first and 10 on their own 20-yard line, but only 34 seconds left in the half. So the expected points are pretty low for the Vikings. They have about 0.3 expected points. So we, we say, okay, well, the, the Vikings had 2.8 to start. Now the Eagles have 0.3 to end. You mash those two things together. The Eagles gain 3.1 points or the Vikings lose 3.1 points. And that's the number that ends up getting fed into the model for the fumble because it's that's the play that's labeled the fumble. Um, but it's too low, right? The fumble number sh- itself should be more like six, seven points. So that's missing from the model a bit. And that would also boost up the Vikings score a bit. Another play that happened on this. And these are all like if you have an explosive play and then the fumble comes at the end. Like the 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 Alexander Madison fumble where he just fumbles the ball right at the line of scrimmage. That's fine. That There's no, no need to make any sort of mental adjustment for that. But another play, um, when Brandon Powell fumbled the punt return. Now, that's another play where if we look at it, we say, okay, it's a 3.6 EPA gain for the Eagles in aggregate. But the reality is that the fumble itself was much more powerful because it came on the end of a 20-yard punt return. So at punt return, EPA that was gained for the Vikings is kind of is taken out of, of what the loss was. It's not huge on this, but it's probably a point or two more than what that play should have been. Um, whereas if you look at, again, the Alexander Madison fumble, and this is going to come into play when I'm talking about um, like running the ball and whether the Eagles can continue to be successful and all that sort of stuff there. Um, you know, it's the second most negative play of the entire game, the Alexander Madison fumble. It's a five-point EPA loss. And fumbles are such huge losses. Rushing fumbles are such huge losses because – a, it's like a low upside sort of play. So it's normally not on the back end of a an explosive play. It could be, but it's normally not. B, they normally come from favorable down and distance situations. So your starting expected points are higher. Uh, this one, for instance, came on first and 10, uh, the Madison fumble. So, you know, you, you have you have that sort sort of issue there. And then... It's pressed against an expected points that you're just not that high for running the ball. Now, the, the biggest negative play of the game was the Cousins strip sack uh, came on second and nine. So not the most advantageous situation, but uh, it's lost. It's very close to the end zone. There's 11 yards that you're pushed back. So that was the, the biggest one in, in this particular game. But those are just some context in what's going on those numbers. So I would say the Vikings were actually better in this game. My adjusted scores had the Vikings being better than Tampa Bay in the first game. So we're kind of doing the exact opposite this season to what we did last season. Last season, everyone knows about the one-score games that the Vikings won during the regular season 11-0 in those games. Uh, and now 0-2 so far in this, in this game. Although, again, it was not that close by win probability the entire second half. 
Um, even more so, my adjusted scores had multiple games last year that said the Vikings were the worst team fundamentally, and they won this year. You should probably say they they would be two and zero according to fundamentals. Of course, you know we don't we don't play the game to win. We don't play to win the adjusted score game. You play to win the actual game, but that gives you some some context of what's going on here. Uh, some other stuff to mention here. Pass rate versus expectation. Vikings, 9% over expectation. The Eagles, 12% under expectation. Now, I think we all noticed this from the fact that the uh, Eagles ran for 259 yards. Swift ran for 175 yards himself, but huge, huge differences here. And how this bleeds through to overall efficiency, I think it's interesting because you look at the game, even with the Jefferson fumble, even with the strip sack, even with the Alexander Madison fumble, all those sorts of things that go into the offensive numbers. Now, Hertz had, you know, interception, but kind of ugly uh, interception there. Even with all of that, the overall EPA per play was basically equal between these two teams. The Eagles had a much better overall success rate but the actual efficiency the actual points that were being generated per play were about the same because explosive plays you get the explosive plays passing it much more than you do for running now um deandre swift did have a 43 yard rush but that was pretty late in the game that was a fourth quarter sort of sort of issue so before that they were running consistently 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 um but not necessarily generating huge numbers. And I think that's why it felt to a lot of people watching the game that there's still a lot of worries about the Eagles offense going forward. I mean, the Vikings had a worse than first percentile rushing efficiency in this game, yet they still were tied with overall efficiency with the Eagles because of the explosive nature of what you can do in the passing game where, you know, you just can't do it. You just cannot do that uh, running the ball. And again, the running includes when it comes to Alexander Madison, the lost fumble. And the passing includes the, the two other lost fumbles for the Vikings. Okay, let's get into the DeAndre Swift discourse. I think this could be a big narrative coming out of the week. DeAndre Swift is reborn. Fantasy footballers rejoice. He could have had, you know, three touchdowns if he didn't get stopped near the goal line a couple of times. And um, and Jalen Hurts get the old uh, tush push, which I hate, but I don't know. I hate saying that, but I, I don't know what else to call it. Um, but I think the thing about Swift is I don't think he's reborn. Anything. I think he's the same exact runner. I think he's like a pretty efficient runner, although I will say that before he got that 43-yard carry, according to the next gen stats model, he was basically like slightly negative according to what you would have expected based upon the blocking and the, and the defensive positioning of the defenders and all that who were really selling out to stop the pass most of the time. Um, so he was kind of jittering behind the line of scrimmage. He was bouncing things outside. One of those times it did turn into um, a holding call, which probably annoys coaches to all to no end when you bounce a run and then, you know, the offensive lineman holds because you're going outside. But it, it kind of, I think there's going to be something like, oh, DeAndre Swift is reborn. I think he's the same dude. He's the same dude. He's someone who I can put up with his ups or downs as a runner. He's a great receiver. He's an explosive player, but he's, he's, he's maybe going to lose yards sometimes. He's going to bounce runs when he shouldn't, things like that. He kind of did the same exact thing. It just, there wasn't defensive pressure to stop him in this game. And also, you know, we turn from saying someone is a patient runner or a jittery sort of runner like Le'Veon Bell was for the Steelers, and it works, but then 
you know, you go to the New York Jets and you're Le'Veon Bell, all of a sudden being a patient, quote unquote, patient runner doesn't work out so well uh, when you don't have that offensive blocking. So again, Swift's the same person. He was good, but I don't think he was fantastic, which will probably be, again, the, the narrative coming out of this. And I think it just really is another underlying fact of what the defense is doing as far as how they're setting up and what the offense is doing is how they're blocking is really more important than necessarily who your running back is. Uh, panic level on Jalen Hurts right now. So Jalen Hurts about even EPA per play last night. And that includes about three expected points that he added via tush pushes. Tush, tush push eye um, that he had during during this game. A couple of touchdowns and a fourth down conversion. Um, not good. I mean, his CPOE, his completion percentage over expected was actually pretty good. But he just looked like flummoxed, I would say. Especially on third and long kind of obvious pass situations. It was working this this defense to stop the to stop the pass was working for the Vikings when the run wasn't, you know, breaking off eight, nine yard chunks. When the Eagles were unsuccessfully passing, let's say once on first and second down. And once you do that, if you have an unsuccessful pass on first and second down, you're not really going to run it two out of three times to pick up the first down in most situations. Most situations, you're going to have a third and long. And Hertz was, was, was hurt in these situations. I mean, when he has third and long, so third and five or more to go, the Vikings only converted three of 12, uh, four sacks for Hertz in those situations and an interception that really had no chance of being completed. Um, so I think the worry level, if I'm going to put the worry level for Hertz right now, it's a three or four out of 10. I will be interested to see if teams are going to be willing to just let them run all over them because I know it's demoralizing from football guy perspective and probably demoralizing if you're on the field to see that. You know, you could look at the score and say, oh, they still scored 34 points. Yeah, you got some turnovers in there that helped. You get a lot of possessions, um, which also helped here. I mean, how many different possessions do we have here for the Vikings? One, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 possessions. That's a ton of possessions. So per possession, I don't think that they were particularly good. The Vikings, but they put a lot of uh, scores up on the board and they had some pretty friendly field position when we talk about turnovers here for the Eagles. So I don't know. I'd be a little bit worried because I think it's two straight games. You don't want to read too much of it. Your Patriots are pretty good. Flores seemed like he knew what he's doing. But if a lot of teams just say, you know what, we're going to let you run the ball on us, kind of like the honestly, the Dolphins did to the Chargers last week. Now, the Chargers had one of the best rushing games also, but you know, the Vikings, I mean, the, the, the Dolphins won the game on the road it just really lowers your ceiling when you're running running really well and you're not passing well to where other teams can kind of stick in the game and if they pass well themselves as Kirk Cousins did in this game you can really stay in it I mean let's talk about Cousins I told you the most negative play of the game was his strip sack so that's five about six EPA that he lost on that one still uh, 0.36 EPA per play on 50 plays so on high volume. That's strong MVP type of numbers if it extended over a whole season. Uh, 8.1 completion percentage over expected. 9.2 A dot, so stretching the ball down the field. He really just did everything in this one. He didn't run the ball, but you know everything else that he, that he could have done on this one. And he's getting he's getting crushed so far this year. He had 10 quarterback hits in Week One which was the second most to Daniel Jones, who Daniel Jones, you know, had 12 hits and Daniel Jones was, was just getting absolutely destroyed by the Cowboys defense. And then he had nine hits in this game. So 19 hits through two weeks. That's a lot. 
for Cousins. Um, I mean, I think he'll survive. I think he stood in there and played well. But, you know, that, that could be an issue going forward and something we're going to have to look at a little bit there. Um, one other note, if you're not watching the Prime Vision broadcast, I would suggest you do so. It's it's really the best way to watch the game. I don't think it'll ever be a mainstream sort of thing because people like to be really close to the field and see the players. But I do like how they highlight most of the time all the skill position players where they are on the field during the entire time. And then sometimes they highlight a few key defenders on there. One thing I will mention about it, and I don't think no one's really talking about it, so I don't think it's a major negative from a um, perception standpoint. But they had this new thing that they rolled out about field goal probabilities. And they showed, like, they drew lines on the field for where you had to reach to get a certain make probability on your field goals. And they they rolled this out at the end of the first half when the Vikings were driving. And if you look at where they were, it said they needed to get to the Eagles' 40-yard line to have a 25% chance of making it. They needed to get to the Eagles' 32-yard line to have a 50% chance of making it. And they needed to get to the Eagles' 23 yard line have a 75% chance of making it. So let me translate these into like field goal kicks. Normally we're assuming about eight yards, right? You snap it back eight yards, you add 10 yards for the end zone. So they said a 25% chance of making what would be about a 58 yard kick, a 50% chance of making a 50 yard kick, and then a 75% chance of making a 41 yard kick. Now I think those, I'm not quite sure about the 50, you know, eight yard kick one because it gets a little wonky. It depends on the kicker or everything else like that. Um, but I don't know. 50% chance of making a 50 yard kick. 50% seems too low for me on that one. I mean, we're talking about NFL kickers. We're talking about a game where it was 71 degrees outside. And I think the wind was somewhere between four and eight miles an hour which they said was part of the model. They said the weather was part of the model. I don't know if the kicker is part of the model, but even so, Greg Joseph, um, the kicker for the Vikings, if you look at historically, he's made about 57, 58% of his kicks that are over 50 yards. So that includes kicks that are like longer, much longer on average than just 50 yards, which they're talking about there. So eh, that number doesn't seem so good to me. Um, And I do think there probably should be more of a like smell test type of QA on situations like this. Cause that just jumped out at me. Maybe you have to, you have to use your kind of like analytical intuition in conjunction with the model results. And I don't know what is causing it on this one. I think it might be like older data, which is something you have to be very concerned about when it comes to field goal kicking, because the kickers have just gotten so, so, so much better over time. Um, I mean, I'd be shocked if a league averages sort of kicker couldn't make a 50, like straight on the 50 yard line, more than 50% of the time. You don't even have that much leg in good weather conditions to do that or make a 41 yard kick 75% of the time. Now nah, that seems more like an 80 or, or higher sort of thing. So just a note on that broadcast, you know, maybe clean that up a little bit. Cause I do think it can turn some people off if there are, um, analytics, quote unquote analytics that don't really pass the, the smell test. All right. Um, before I get to Q&A, I want to discuss a piece of research that I'm working on. I'm not going to publish it yet because I've still been working on it, but I think it's interesting. You guys may be interested to hear about it. So I'm putting together something where it's like an expected sack, no pressure rate for particular games. So I have a way of doing strength of schedule where you model out um 
you model out regressions and all the different teams by labeling one particular team, whether they're the offense or the defense, whether they're home or away on every single game. And then you kind of run a regression. It's called a ridge regression to try to get the lowest coefficients possible. And you run that to get the numbers for the like true strength of the team. So it helps play the different teams against each other. And that's very important when we're talking about pressure rates because so much of it is controlled by the offense that you're going against. And then the offense, so much of it is controlled by, at least a certain degree is controlled by the defenses that you're going against and the strength of schedule at the same time. So I put that together. But for offenses, I'm not just using the offense. I'm using offense like team quarterback pairings versus different defenses that I have here. And I thought I got some pretty interesting results as far as what we'll expect. And I'll talk about some of the stuff for week two. I mean, it's not counterintuitive. It's not counterintuitive, but it's maybe um, giving more concrete numbers to what our intuition would have told us anyway. So for instance, if we're looking at this week, week two, what's going to go on here. Um, there are a couple of different games that jump out as having very much a higher expected pressure rate that you would get versus, you know, your league average. Your league average rate is maybe like 30%-ish of dropbacks that you're going to get pressured on. So what what are the two games? You could probably guess them that have a higher than expected pressure rate. I mean, one of them, which is actually the number two game, according to my numbers here, um, is the Jets versus the Dallas Cowboys. So... And this one is almost all defensive driven, believe it or not. Even Zach Wilson, his offensive like expected pressure rate over expectation, with, including you know with that New York Jets line and the time that he spent last year and, and limited dosage this year is only about 2% over expected. But then the Dallas Cowboys add about 8.5%, 9% over expected that they're so good. So that's a way of kind of like parceling out those two different – those two different um, – expectations there number one justin fields and the chicago bears versus tampa bay now what's interesting is tampa bay is actually a below expectation pressure on defense about two percent below but then justin fields is about 13 percent above expectation for taking pressure so you know sometimes taking pressures isn't bad and uh, justin fields case i think it is pretty bad um it estimates that cj stroud will have the third hardest time as far as taking pressures over expectation mostly based upon him against the Colts and what we saw in very limited action in week one. So maybe a grain of salt on that sort of, on that sort of one uh, next Josh Dobbs again, limited action. So maybe with a grain of salt there. And, but then it starts to get down to pretty small numbers when it comes to Mac Jones against the dolphins, Daniel Jones against the Cardinals and so on and so forth there. There's not, not a whole lot to go on there on the flip side of it. I was surprised to see uh, Baker Mayfield, and Tampa Bay is having the lowest pressure rate versus expectation, but it's really because of the Chicago Bears defense. Man, um, we probably had a little bit too much positivity about the Bears going into the season, assuming that you know some draft picks, which normally do not have a huge week one, uh, week one, week two, week three impact. Um, sometimes they don't even have a big rookie impact. Generally, that a few free agent signings. Again, free agents normally are not good values. And then DJ Moore would really have that big of an impact on this team. I mean, Justin Fields is, as I mentioned before, is about 13% pressure rate over expectation. Justin Fields in that offensive line. And then the defense is way worse than everyone else, about a 9% pressure rate under expectation. So that's why Baker Mayfield looks like he'll have a somewhat clean pocket. I mean, maybe they'll get a bit better, but they were not pressuring Jordan Love, let me tell you, week one with a good offensive line of course there other guys who look good uh jordan love comes in next 
uh, kind of split between the fact that the Falcons rush doesn't look so great and his offensive line looks pretty good. And then it starts to get a little bit lower. Burrow looks pretty good. Uh, Goff to uh, Trevor Lawrence, but these are all kind of similar-ish sort of numbers. Jimmy Garoppolo, our, our, our friend Jimmy, has a 2% pressure rate under expectation for offensively. So anyway, it's an interesting number, maybe some outlier results that we can look at um, where they're not totally intuitive, like everyone and their mother is going to want to play the Dallas Cowboys defense this week against Zach Wilson. Uh, maybe we can get some more some less intuitive results. I would say the less intuitive thing that I would look at at this one is to say, Hey, maybe Baker has a really good chance of, of being able to continue the second half success that he had against the Vikings last week, continue that this week against the Chicago bears. Like the bears might just really, really be that bad um, this season. I have them near the bottom of my power rankings. Okay. If you have any more questions about week two, anything else you want to add in here, please jump in the comments and do so. I'll start rolling through some of these here. Um, thoughts on some of the Eagles play calling. I mean, I think they, I'm fine with the fact that they just kept on running the ball. I mean, if, if you're, if they can't stop it at all, which they couldn't in the second half, I thought it was good. Um, other than that, I don't know. I do think they have to really get in the lab and look at a couple of different things. First was the third and long when the defense is bringing three and then dropping everyone back. Like, how are you going to deal with that? Or third and medium. How are you going to deal with that? You can't really run a wide receiver screen. That's not going to work. Uh, scrambling is not really going to work. We saw Hurst try to scramble once. And he could get like five, six yards in that circumstance. But even so, there are just so many bodies. And it's going to be a zone, right? When you have that many defensive backs out there. Um, it's just really going to be tough for him to scramble. And the, the players that we're talking about here, Devontae Smith seems to be and A.J. Brown can be deep options. They can also be yak options. There's just not as much there. So I think they got to figure out a little bit of something on what to do in these third and long situations. And they highlighted the blitz a lot last night as part of the Prime Vision broadcast. I don't know if I'm as concerned about that. Um, but, you know, my, my, again, my worry level on Hertz is like a three or four out of ten. I'm still going to wait a little bit, a little bit longer here. Uh, thoughts on the touchback rule? I mean, I think it's like... I think anyone who's arguing that it's that that it's a good rule is trolling slash, you know, contrarianism for the sake of contrarianism. Um, it's like one of those things where, oh, you have to be careful near the end zone. Well, I mean, don't you like watching the plays when they extend the ball for for the end zone? Clearly on that play, like Justin Jefferson did not need to do that. Like he could have gotten out of bounds. Actually, it would have been good to run a little bit more clock since there were 30 something seconds left. The Eagles wouldn't have gotten any points at the end of the half. Um, and they probably would have would have would have plunged in, but whatever. They're not going to change it. I don't see any momentum towards changing changing the rule. And I get that it's like based upon old uh like rugby principles and things like that. Whatever. I don't care. Um, I, I do think it's kind of silly, but I don't think there's any momentum to change that sort of rule unless it happens in a high profile playoff game or something, or something of that nature. Um, another Q and a here in a small sample of two games. What's your opinion on how the Eagles offense Jalen hurts has changed post Steichen? I mean, I don't know if it's changed. I think the defenses are playing them differently. That seems to be the main thing. And again, I think it's working. You might look at the score. You might go to score last week that the Eagles were up 17, nothing fairly early last week. Although pick six was part of that last week and say, ah, well, you know, things are working. 
offensively. It was not a huge problem to worry about. I mean, I don't know. I think what teams are learning here, and this is where we're the, the people are going to have like the wrong takeaways from this, just as they did last season. But what teams are learning here is to say, even against the Eagles, right? You look at Jalen Hurts, you look at that offensive line, the running game there, how successful they were even running the game last year. According to like old school NFL principles, you'd be looking at this and you'd say, whatever we do, do not let them run the ball down our throats. That's priority number one, two, three, four to a hundred. That's what, that's what teams would say. I mean, hell teams used to say that about like great passing teams. They used to say, we can't let them run the ball. We can't let them run the ball. We can't let them run the ball. They'd really be saying it about the Eagles. I think you have to go against that kind of old school intuition and say, you know what? Let's let the Eagles run the ball. And yeah, they ran, they ran up and down the field a couple of times. They had their 43 yard rush, but if you get them in a couple of unsuccessful runs, and I think maybe mixing up things defensively, to get them in a couple of unsuccessful runs, you can just kill a drive. That's all you got to do. You just got to get like one unsuccessful run, maybe two unsuccessful runs on a series of downs, then you can kill a drive. Or put Hurts in a situation where he has to make something happen. Because for all the, the value that you're getting out of this running game for the Eagles, it's A.J. Brown, it's Devontae Smith, it's Dallas Goddard, it's them that are really making things happen. I was a little disappointed by the fact that they seem to be like forcing the ball to Dallas Goddard at the beginning of the game. Um, I mean, it seemed kind of ridiculous that they had him stacked outside with Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown, and they threw him the uh, the screen out there. It's like, uh, do you want Dallas Goddard, Goddard running the screen or blocking in that situation? Oh, come on, let's get it to A.J. Brown <laughs> or, or Devontae Smith and not Dallas Goddard there. So I was a little bit perturbed by that sort of play calling, but I don't know if it's like a Steichen thing or not a Steichen thing. I think it's more defenses are adjusting and they're, you know, getting over the hump of the fact that we got to stop the pass and not stop the run. What will end up happening though? And I highlighted this on a NFL live segment. So it was an NFL live segment last year where they were showing how passing was down, rushing was up and the defenses were essentially winning as they are this year so far, tons of unders week one. One of the worst offensive weeks, week ones in NFL history, week one. Um, And then midway through the discussion, not even midway, like a quarter of the way into discussion, they just, all the NFL players, the former NFL players around there, just start lamenting the fact that defenses are so soft and are allowing, you know, 0.1 more yards per carry. (laughs) It's like, what are you lamenting? Defenses are winning. Why are you saying that? Defenses have changed and they need to go back to being physical and defenses are winning. That's what, but that's what you're going to hear this year. Trust me. When you see games like this, um, if the Chargers would have won, they didn't win. But if the Chargers would have won after running the ball so much in that game, um, people are going to look at these stats. They're going to ignore the overall fact that defenses are doing better. They're going to look at running, getting better. And they're just going to have some sort of focus on the fact that like we need to, we need to shift back to stopping to run the ball when it makes absolutely no sense. So I do think if teams can really turn over in that direction, that'll be interesting. And again, most of this is defense driven. I think teams are saying a lot of like commentary is saying, oh, offenses are building offenses to run the ball better. And that's the trend in the NFL. No, they're not really. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Like maybe a little bit, but I don't see it. I don't see it. They're still investing so much more in passing the ball. 
Um, it's just defenses are the ones who are changing. Defenses are are investing a lot in stopping the pass and not as much in stopping the run. There, I mean, look at the like the Browns linebackers I was pointing to earlier this year. These dudes are like 225 pounds. You know, they're tiny. Um, you have, you know, maybe a, a box safety coming down and playing a lot of linebacker in these different offenses. You have um, edge rushers are getting smaller and smaller to play here. It's really just like the baseline is changing defensively for a lot of teams. And I think we'll continue to shift that way. I mean, why not? It's working. Um, but this is going to somehow get spun into like running the ball is back and teams are doing such a good job investing in the run and the defenses need to be better stopping the run where it's just all the wrong conclusions are going to be drawn from this as they, as they usually are. All right. That's going to be it for me this morning. A little bit abbreviated here. Uh, enjoy week two, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe unexpectedpoints.substack.com. I will have the advanced reviews that'll come out Sunday night for their early window and then Monday morning for the late window and Sunday night football. And then of course, Monday night football review. And one, one piece I haven't been able to put out yet is the adjusted quarterback efficiency. A big mover in that is using ESPN's open score for different receivers to give value or um, takeaway value based upon how good the receivers have been there. Um, I, I spoke to Seth Walder over at ESPN. They were hosting this over at 538 before, which you may know is no longer uh, in existence, basically. I guess it's in existence, but it's not adding any, any new data. It's been dissolved, essentially, the people behind 538. So he says they are they are going to publish those results. It will come out at ESPN, but maybe not until after the third or fourth week of the season. So we're not going to have adjusted quarterback efficiency there. We'll have our other quarterback efficiency metrics, the Bayesian quarterback efficiency, but we're not going to have the adjusted number till week three or four. So I figured I'd let everyone know that. Uh, anyway, subscribe YouTube, subscribe on unexpectedpoints.substack.com, and I'll be talking to everyone. I guess it'll be on Monday morning. Thanks so much for tuning in.